0: Our text today is continuing our study in the book of Revelation from Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, the, the letter of uh, the message of Jesus to his church at Laodicea. So, here now, God's holy word. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold, Nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thus far the reading of God's Word, let's give thanks together. Father, indeed, we thank you for your Word, and we ask you to cause us by your Spirit to abide in your Word. And we ask that your Spirit would fill us so that we would understand it, that we would receive it that we would do the proper self-diagnosis to understand our spiritual condition, our needs, our lack, our poverty apart from your riches. So, Father, strengthen us with your word today. Help me to articulate it clearly. Deliver us from all error. Deliver us from all distraction. We humbly pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Lack of situational awareness leads to calamity. In December 1972, three days before the new year, Eastern Airlines Flight 401 from New York was on approach to Miami when the pilot and crew became obsessed and fixated on the fact that an external landing light was not operating. It was not functioning. It was burned out and they failed to register, having been consumed with this small thing, they failed to register that the plane was quickly losing altitude, which resulted in a horrific crash, leaving only a few survivors. In April 1986, the reactor crew at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in the Soviet Union. They were performing a test on the power supply, unaware of a fatal flaw in the reactor design, which resulted in one of the most frightening man-made disasters in human history. In 2014, residents in Flint, Michigan, began noticing that the water flowing into their homes uh, for drinking was Uh, smelly and discolored and disgusting, and it turns out that the city, in order to save money, switched its water supply from a nearby water purification plant to a local river, not knowing that the city water system was not built for uh, river water, ignorant of the impact that untreated river water would have on the pipes and the systems of the city. All these stories, and we can name many more, Stories of events like this have some phrases in common. Disasters, small and great, have some phrases in common. They didn't know, they were unaware, they were ignorant of, they weren't paying attention. In every case, critical information was either being ignored or buried or for whatever reason overlooked and each time it results in catastrophe and disaster. They thought they were fine but they weren't. They thought they had things under control, but they didn't. They thought they were making good decisions, but they weren't. And a lack of awareness is at the heart of Jesus' charge against the church at Laodicea, the last church that he speaks to in these opening chapters of the book of Revelation. He says to them, you think you're rich, but you're impoverished. You are convinced of the clarity of the insight and the wisdom and, and, the, and the, 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 the cleverness that you have. You, you are so consumed with your own insight, but you're blind. You don't know a thing. You think you're wise, but you're not. You assume that you're robed in glorious, fashionable apparel, but you know what? You're naked. You think you're alive, but you're dead. There, there's a great distance between your perception of yourself and the reality. And because of your lack of situational awareness, you are headed for disaster. I'm going to spit you out of the body of Christ. But Jesus has also Here's the hope. Here's the promise. You are one step away from deliverance. You're you're one step away from disaster. You're also one step away from deliverance. If you would listen to me, if you would humble yourself, if you would open up the door and let me in, I will deliver you. We will feast together. I will enthrone you right next to me. I come bearing all the gifts that you need, but you must respond to my voice. This is what he says to this church. In the previous message that we studied last week of the letter to the church at Philadelphia, Jesus didn't have any rebuke. He didn't have any correction for them. It was all very encouraging. He said, continue to guard, continue to keep the doors. I'll make you pillars in my house. You'll be the pillars that hold things up. He's very encouraging. In the previous letter, there's no rebuke. In the letter that follows, there's no praise. There's, no, there's very little uh, uh, in the way of encouragement. There's only correction. And to a group of people like we can assume the church at Laodicea was to receive this kind of correction, uh, to a people who are so self-satisfied, so confident of their own impeccability, any pat on the back might only further inflate them. So Jesus comes with nothing but reproof and disapproval. And it's possible that they aren't exactly used to being talked to this way. Uh, Many sources uh, say that this was the wealthiest city in the region, certainly the wealthiest city of the seven that Jesus speaks to. Everybody looks up to them. Everybody wants to be them. People in other cities wish they were Laodiceans. They envy them. And this assumption of superiority and self-reliance had seeped into the church. Not only does the city believe that they're superior, but this seeps into the church and they believe themselves to not even really need God's mercies. What, What do we need to be saved from? We've got everything. What do we need to be forgiven for? We have everything we need. We're rich. So Jesus comes in his full authority and he declares himself using three titles to be the sovereign, the Lord. He says, I am the Amen, I am the faithful and true witness, and I am the beginning of the creation of God. Let's look at each of those three titles very quickly. What does each mean? What does it mean when Jesus says, I am the Amen? We use that phrase all the time in worship. We all say it at the end of our prayers, even our smallest children, when they pray, they end the prayer with amen. We uh, sing hymns together, and at the end of a hymn, we all say amen together. We say amen at the end of creeds. It's a way of saying for us, so be it. I agree. Yes, that's right. And occasionally we'll say it jokingly in a conversation when somebody says uh, something uh, really Pithy or or something that's really you know exciting for us to agree with, we'll say Amen. That's right. That's I agree with that, and and that's right, and that's good and true for us to use it that way. But it's even more than that. Amen is the response to a covenant oath. It's an expression of agreement to the covenant. This comes up all over the Old Testament. One place that it comes up in God's laws in Deuteronomy chapter twenty-seven, when the Levites read out. The curses of the law for the people. And every time they read out a curse of the law, the people are supposed to respond, amen. So uh, back in Deuteronomy 27, verse 14, the Levites shall speak with a loud voice and say to all the men of Israel, cursed is the one who makes a carved or molded image, an abomination to Yahweh, the work of the hands of the craftsman, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, amen. Cursed is the one who treats his father or mother with contempt. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who moves his neighbor's landmark. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who makes the blind to wander off the road. And all the people shall say, Amen. And on throughout the rest of the chapter. So the covenant curses were proclaimed and the people were to respond faithfully, loudly, with one voice, Amen. Uh, they do it again with Nehemiah, centuries later, Nehemiah renews the covenant and he tells them what's going to happen if they continue to mistreat their neighbors and continue to violate the Sabbath and do all the other things that they were doing. And uh, the people all say again in one accord, amen. So the amen, to say amen, is to agree with God's covenant and it's to call down the curses of the covenant. It's to accept the curses of the covenant if you fail to obey. Now that sounds scary, but here's the good news and here's the relief of what Jesus says here. When Jesus comes to the church at Laodicea, he says, I am the amen. God has initiated a covenant with us with all of its blessings and curses. Jesus, I'm sorry, God the Father says obey. God the Father issues the covenant and Jesus stands up and says, amen, yes, uh, we, can, we can do this. Yes and amen. He is the guarantee. Jesus is the guarantee of all the promises of the covenant. It all finds definition and resolution in, in him. Paul said that all of God's promises are amen in Christ. So Jesus is the yes to all the blessings. Jesus is the yes to all the curses. He is the yes to keeping the covenant. So the father says, obey. And Jesus says amen we will obey. Jesus is the amen of perfect obedience to the Father. Jesus is our amen to the law. We couldn't keep it apart from his work and the curses would weigh heavy on us and destroy us. It would all be curses for us. But Jesus is our amen. Jesus is our yes to the Father. So when we use amen in worship and in prayer, uh, particularly it's, it's, our, it's our recognition that our salvation is wholly dependent, not upon us keeping the covenant, but the perfect covenant keeping of Jesus who empowers us and strengthens us and, and uh, gives us his resources, his spirit to keep the covenant. Uh, Jesus put himself under the covenant. Jesus took the covenant curses on, on himself in our place. And so in this way, Jesus is the amen. Jesus Uh, takes this all on himself. So that's the first. When Jesus comes, he says, I am the amen. I am the faithful and true witness. He's used the word witness before here. He's called himself the witness. It's the same word I said in the past, the same word we get the word martyr from, Uh, the Greek word uh, uh, martyrios. Martyros is, uh, is uh, is the word that we translate witness. So Jesus is the true martyr. He's the one who's willing to die for his faith. He has been obedient to the Father to the death. And he is the proof. Jesus is the proof that there is resurrection and abundant life for faithful martyrs. And because of this, we can trust what he says. He's the faithful and true witness. He's the amen. And he also says, I am the beginning of the creation of the God. Uh, of God. This doesn't mean that, that he's the first thing created. Jesus is not created. Jesus is co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit. Jesus was not created, but he is the head of creation. The word here is arche. He He is the source. He is the fountain of creation. He is preeminent over all creation. And this is the one who comes to speak to the church in Laodicea. He is the amen. He is the faithful and true witness. He is the beginning of creation. What does that mean? you better listen to what he says. That's what it means, that he is over and above everything. He is the answer uh, to the covenant that we need to stand between us and the wrath of God. So in verse 15, he continues. He says, I know your works, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Almost every commentator points out at this, at this point that Laodicea, the city of Laodicea, was situated between two other nearby important cities, Colossae and Heropolis. The city of Colossae was a mountain city and it benefited from the cold mountain streams of water to supply it. The city of Heropolis was renowned around the world for its hot mineral springs, which were believed to have healing properties. Anywhere there's a hot spring, people think, oh, this, we need a spa there. That's, that's going to be really refreshing and healing there. But So, so you have Colossae with its cool mountain streams. You have Her- Heropolis with its hot, uh, its hot springs. But by the time the water flows down the valley and gets to Laodicea, it's nauseatingly lukewarm. And I've, I've stood, when I was about 10 years old, uh, my dad was stationed in Turkey and we made a point of visiting all of these cities mentioned in the New Testament that we could get to. And I've stood in the pools of water around what's left of Laodicea. And to this day, well, 30 years ago, 35 years ago, it was uh, still this bizarre whitish color, very milky colored water full of minerals, and it was strange strangely tepid. It was neither cold nor hot. You look at it and you think, maybe it'd be refreshing to dip my toes in there. But it's not. It's very weirdly lukewarm. And you wouldn't want to drink it. You barely want to wade in it. You just wade in it for the experience. But, but it's really strange. Now, I'm sure that this wasn't the only water supply for the city. Such a wealthy city surely had a source of sweet water for drinking. But they knew fully what Jesus was talking about. And this statement gets their attention using something that's very unique to their community. And so what does he say? Well, cold water and cold drinks are refreshing, especially when you're sweaty and thirsty, when you're working hard. There's nothing, there's nothing better than cold water, cold drinks. Hot drinks, like the spiced wine that they drank for medicinal purposes, like hot coffee, like, like chicken broth. Uh, the, these hot things are healing and warming. So we like cold drinks, we like hot drinks, but at Laodicea, they're neither cold enough to be refreshing or hot enough to be healing. They're, they're good for nothing. Um, it's sort of like tea. I really love super, super cold iced tea. It's got to be really cold. When I order sweet tea... I always say extra, 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 extra ice. I want it completely full of ice because when you pour that hot tea, that room temperature tea over the top of it, it melts the ice. And then, and then it's cold. And then it's cool. Don't give me three little cubes of ice in the, bi- in the bottom of a, of a glass of tea. That doesn't, that's nasty. That's terrible. When you, when you hear people at Chick-fil-A ordering, I want a sweet tea, no ice. I want to say, are you insane? That's, what are you, Crazy. Are you crazy? That's not how you do it. What do you, you think they're stealing tea from you by giving you extra ice? No, the tea melts the ice and it waters down the tea. It's, I've got it all worked out. I've got, it's, all, it's all really... Tea is really good cold. It's got to be real cold. And it's good when it's really hot. I, it's really, really hot. But if you've ever had tea that's room temperature, especially if you think it's cold or you think it's hot and you take a sip, uh, it's nauseating it's sickening. And that's Laodicea. They're not one or the other. They're not cold. They're not hot. Their work and their ministry and the way they preach the word and the way they live out their faith isn't satisfying like a cold drink. It has zero potential to be therapeutic for anybody like a hot drink. It's just room temperature. And Jesus says, I'm going to spit you out. I'm going to vomit you out. God has already threatened to do this one time before with Israel. This is, this is, old, this is old language. God used this language back in Leviticus, uh, Leviticus 18, uh, where uh, God was telling them what's going to happen if they go into the land of promise and they just start to absorb all the toxicity of the Canaanites. Listen, listen to what God says back then. Leviticus 18.24 This is before they go into the land. He says, Do not defile yourself with any of these things, for by all these the nations are defiled, which I am casting out before you. For the land is defiled, therefore I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it, and the land vomits out its inhabitants. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, and shall not commit any of these abominations, either any of your own nation or any stranger who dwells among you. For all these abominations the men of the land have done who are before you, and thus the land is defiled, lest the land vomit you out also when you defile it, as it vomited out the nations that were before you. For whoever commits any of these abominations, the persons who commit them shall be cut off from among their people. Well, what's the threat back there? The threat is that... Uh, the the compromise with the local Canaanite culture, absorption of their cultic practices, would cause the land to spew them out. Their abominations and idolatry. These things are, these things are poison. So they're not going to be incorporated into the environment of the land of promise, the land that God has given. This this blessing in the land. They are sick. They are diseased. They can't be incorporated. And so the land, God says three times, is going to vomit them up, is going to spit them out because they're nasty, because they're corrupt. So they're they're, they're sick. So now Jesus says this about this church. Because you have become so toxic, because you have become defiled, because you have the bacteria of self-righteousness growing all over you, like like food that hasn't been kept at the right temperature, you're going to get thrown up out of the body of Christ. You're going to be expelled at high velocity because you're like poison. And once again, you can imagine this refined, highly cultured, wealthy, well-to-do church of people who think everything is just fine don't want to be talked to this way, but Jesus isn't finished. Verse 17, because you, you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy for me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. They say that they have need of nothing. The Roman historian Tacitus records in the year AD 61 that there was a major earthquake that struck uh, Laodicea. There's, there was a, another earthquake this past week in Turkey. There are always earthquakes in this region of the world, but there was an earthquake in Laodicea that did pretty significant damage, and the citizens of Laodicea were so rich and so independent that they refused any help from the Roman Empire, and they rebuilt their, their city with their own resources And it's as if they told Rome, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. Well, it's good of them to take care of themselves. That's that's laudable. Nothing wrong with that. But this church has grown up in this environment of hubris and have come to believe that they are so rich that they don't even need what God has to provide for them. They can take care of that too. They can get along just fine without God's mercy or God's riches. Who needs Jesus when you have money in the bank? Uh, that's our insurance. We don't need, we don't need Jesus. And Jesus says, you think you're rich, but you're wretched, you're miserable, you're poor, you're blind, you're naked, and there are some things that you require that you can only get from me. He says this, if we put these two things together, he says, he says you're poor, I have gold. You're naked, I have white garments. You're blind, I have ointment for your eyes. I have all the adornments to clothe you and turn you into a glorious bride prepared for your wedding feast. So Jesus says, I need you to buy these things for me. I need you to come get them. Well, we would ask the question, well, if they're poor, how are they supposed to buy these things? Jesus is asking for a transaction. You need to buy these things, but they're poor. Well, this sounds like a reference to Isaiah 55, where uh, Isaiah 55 says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. So there's a spiritual transaction that's taking place that acknowledges that the things that are being bought are indeed precious. They are of great value. And yet to the one receiving them, they are at no cost, which means someone else is picking up the tab. So, so come get these things from Jesus, come obtain them, come buy them. Why do you spend what little you have on that? That doesn't satisfy these things have been paid for that you're getting, but they're free to you. And so Jesus wants this transaction to take place. Now, we're going to use transactional language later in Revelation when the transactions of the beast are talked about in, in economic language. You can either buy or sell without the, without the mark of the beast. The language here is symbolic. The language here is buying and selling in the spiritual dimension, and so is that. And we'll, we'll refer back to this when we get to there, but just keep that in the back of your head that that's a spiritual transaction, that's a spiritual marketplace. A spiritual exchange that's taking place there. Well, here Jesus is coming to this church bearing gifts. Gifts that they don't think they need in all of their pride, but salvation for them, deliverance for them, will only come in admitting that they are in great poverty and they cannot get the things that he brings by themselves. Verse uh, Verse 19, he says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Despite his displeasure... With this church, he still professes his love for her. He loves her so much. He loves her so much that he's coming for her and he wants her to repent. He loves her so much that he's not going withhold. He's not going to withhold correction or discipline or rebuke. If he didn't love her, he wouldn't speak to her. He wouldn't offer his gifts. He wouldn't visit her this way. But because he loves her, he comes in correction. Proper Faithful discipline is a mark of love. This theme runs through Proverbs, Proverbs thirteen twenty four, He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. We think it is loving to let children uh, continue in their foolishness and to not correct them because that will keep the peace in the house and that will save them some trouble and it will save us some trouble and we won't have any tears and we won't have any fussing we'll just let them continue in their foolishness without correction but God's Word says that is hate that is not love the Bible says that is cruelty that is not love the man who never corrects his children doesn't love his children. He's not being kind to his children. He's not being a gentle father. He's being a cruel father. The Bible says he hates his children. And he's asking for the, for the destruction of their souls if he doesn't discipline them promptly. That's the word in Proverbs thirteen twenty four. He who loves him disciplines him promptly. When you tell your child to come here and they run the opposite direction, that's, that's a loving teaching moment right there. That right there, God has gifted you an opportunity to save their soul from hell. God has given you that opportunity right there to stop them in their tracks, to stop their rebellion and their sedition and correct it right there to discipline them promptly. Because what will happen the day where you tell them to stop and there's a car coming on the other side? What will happen on the day that you're telling them to stop and there's some danger that they don't see on the other side? It's loving to say, no, when daddy says, come here, you come here. And I'm going to correct you and I'm going to make you cry now in a little way so that we're not all crying in a bigger way some other day. I'm going to correct you now because I love you so much. And I don't want you to listen to the voice of your father. I don't want you to obey the voice that God has put in your life to correct you and to discipline you. If you do not do that, the scriptures say you hate your son, you hate your daughter. Proverbs 23 do not withhold correction from a child, for if you beat him with a rod, he will not die. You shall beat him with a rod and deliver his soul from hell. The man who does not require obedience from his children, who does not require respect and gratitude from his children, is buying his children a ticket to hell. That's what you're doing. God has put parents in a position of authority over their children. He's delegated, God has delegated his authority to parents so that the voice of the faithful, godly parent, we don't have time today to get into exceptions about angry, faithless, godless parents. You know, we would make exceptions for a parent who requires a child to sin or who abuses their authority. But I'm talking about a faithful godly parent. The voice of a faithful godly parent is the voice of God in that child's life. Disobedience to parents is disobedience to God. Read the fifth commandment. Isn't that what the fifth commandment teaches? So it's not kind or loving or compassionate to tolerate a child's disobedience and rebellion. Because what you're doing is teaching them that it's okay to do your own thing and go your own way, and it's okay to flaunt the authority that God has placed in your life. You say to them, You know what? I'll tell you things and I'll ask you to do things and I'll command things, but I I don't really expect you to do anything I say. I don't expect you to respect me. And if you defy me, there are no consequences. Also, if you defy God, there are no consequences either. That is the lesson. And that's not love, that's cruelty. That's how you make a monster. That's how you raise somebody that nobody wants to be around. That's how you raise somebody who is intolerable to be in the presence of. That's how you raise somebody who's going to go on to neglect and abuse their own spouse and their own children one day. That's how you raise somebody who's going to be a shame on your whole family. Correction is tough work to stop what you're doing, to drop everything, and to go deal with this little rebel, this little seditious revolutionary in your home. You know that's what they are. That's the, the Bible says. If you do that hard work, there's rest and peace on the other side of it. Proverbs twenty nine says, "The rod and rebuke give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Correct your son, and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your soul. A, a peaceful home doesn't just happen." You don't just have good kids. Anybody just have good kids? They're just born and just had little halos and little white robes and they sing psalms all the time and they just never made any trouble. I didn't have those. I don't know if you had any, but we don't have those. They take work and parents who love them enough to not put up with their disrespect and disobedience and their nonsense are parents who, who love and correct and discipline their children. And here Jesus says, I love you. I love you. uh, verse uh, 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten because I'm coming to you in correction. You know, you know that I love you. And what he asks from them in response is for them to uh, give him back red hot zeal and repentance. He says, therefore be zealous and repent. This church, even though they're sitting under the threat of judgment, even though they're being corrected right now, even though they're One minute away from being expelled and spat out. They're also one minute away from riches and rest and glory and restoration and communion and enthronement. You see, it doesn't take Jesus years and years to forgive and forget. When you come to Jesus to say, Father, through the name of Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit, I recognize how really, really dumb and foolish and terrible and stupid I've been. I've been so sinful He doesn't say, well, uh, I hear you, but let me think about it. Boy, I mean, because you've really messed up. I mean, you've really, really, really messed up. And I just need to take some time. I need to take some time to think about this. There's no cooling off period for God. There's no time for him to think about it It and maybe time for buyer's remorse to set in on God's part. No, Jesus is zealous for his people. He's zealous for his bride. He wants communion with her right now. He wants to fix everything up right now and right here. They are one minute away from restoration. That's all I've got to do is repent and to zealously pursue him. So verse 21 Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Remember from last week, this isn't, this isn't that picture of a weak, passive Christ lightly tapping at the door, subject to the will of man, just hoping will befriend him. Who is he? He's already told us who He is. This is the Amen. This is the faithful and true witness. This is the Creator, the Lord and Sovereign of all, coming flamed with light with a flaming sword. He's not making a weak request. He's the King of kings who makes war on His enemies and vanquishes all His foes. And so He's not talking to the world in general here. He's not lightly tapping, lightly weakly asking, tapping on the door of every heathen's heart. Uh, who opposes the truth. He's not weakly asking for the friendship. He's coming to his church here. He's coming to his church in all of his glory. Like that scene in the Song of Solomon where the groom comes to enjoy communion with his bride. He comes and beats on her door and says, let me in. I want to renew covenant with you. I want to refresh and restore our relationship. I desire communion with you. But I want you to welcome me. I want you to want me. I need you to need me. I love you. I want you to reign with me. In verse 22, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All of the letters have ended this way. That he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So while each message is directed to a specific congregation in a specific time in history, they're recorded so that all churches of all time can hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Spirit is speaking to every church in every generation through these letters. And this danger toward this lukewarmness, this inclination toward room temperature religion is present in every age. So, so what is that? In summary now, and trying to look back on this and what Jesus is saying, what does it mean to be lukewarm? We're inclined to think that when Jesus talks about being, people being hot or cold, or churches being hot or cold, that he's referring to their emotional temperature. So that to be hot is to be fully on fire for the Lord, and to be lukewarm just means to, to be kind of not committed all the way. That, that to be hot means to be super loud and energetic and really extroverted, and to be cold means to be emotionally shut down and reserved and stiff and stuffy, and to be lukewarm is to be somewhere in between. But, but Jesus implies that being cold is okay, because in verse 15, he says, I could wish you were cold or hot. I, I wish you were one or the other. So it seems like cold is okay, but lukewarm is not. So... So while he does go on to talk about zeal when he says, you know, be zealous and repent, uh, I'm not convinced that he's talking about emotional temperature the way that you know we hear it talked about when, when you hear somebody saying, well, I'm on fire for the Lord. It seems rather what he's talking about with this, 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 um, this accusation of being lukewarm, he's referring to their usefulness. Because they're neither hot nor cold, they're neither good for healing or good for refreshment. They're ineffective. They're useless. And he supplies context for this by by adding to this, the lack of awareness of their condition. So he says in verse 16, because you're lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. And he defines what that means. Because you say I'm rich, become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. So, so because they don't know their real spiritual condition, they don't know the trouble they're in, they think they're fine and they're not, that's what it means to be lukewarm. To be lukewarm in this context and the way Jesus uses it is to be spiritually bankrupt and not know it. See, he's not calling them to be, oh, slightly more committed, just, just, a, just a little bit more serious. He, he's, he's not saying, oh, you're just complacent. He's saying you're faithless. He's saying, you're unbelievers. He's not calling them lazy. He's calling them condemned. See, you can be completely busy, totally consumed with activity, absolutely gregarious and outgoing, full of energy and emotion, convinced that your own priorities and values are critical to the kingdom, and at the same time be absolutely worthless because you're proud and you're self-righteous and you're self-deceived. You won't receive correction when it's presented, and you won't repent when confronted with your sin. That's what it means to be lukewarm. And to the self-deceived church, this lukewarm church, Jesus comes and says, if you'll just be honest for a minute, you'll realize that you don't have it all together. Despite all your efforts to keep up appearances, you know what a mess you are. You, you are a big mess, and I see, I can see that you are broke, and you are blind, and you are naked. I see that. Don't you see it? Yeah, you see it? Well, why don't you just confess it? Why don't you confess it? Why don't you just humble yourself and stop the charade of trying to convince everybody else of how you've got it all together, and why don't you just admit your poverty, and I will supply your weakness. I will supply your lack. Now, Jesus has come knocking on our door today, the door of our church, and he's brought bread and wine. He says, I want to sup with you. I want to eat with you. I want to commune with you. I want to sit down and dine with you. But before we get there, we've got a hymn and we've got about three prayers before we get there. So we've got plenty of time for each one of us to self-diagnose and ask, does any of that apply to me? We've got plenty of time to think about this. It only takes a minute. It only takes a minute to pray. Father, I am tired of pretending that I'm fine when I'm not. I'm tired of pretending that I'm right all the time when I know I'm not. Where I'm so wrong. I'm not right you're right. I need your righteousness. I can't say amen to what you tell me to do, but Jesus can. He's my amen. I need your riches. I need your resources. I need your spirit, because without it, I'm headed for disaster. Open my eyes. I need Jesus to be my amen. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, we ask you for your Spirit to indeed open our eyes and to help us to see our condition, especially uh, those areas of our life that we're not growing in those areas that we need continued work and sanctification in so Father, we pray that you would minister to us by your word, by your Spirit, through the sacraments now, Father, uh, attune us and, and clarify for us those things that that need to change and be fixed and the things that we need to confess to you. Places where we're impoverished, where we need your riches, so that we may not be like this church that stands a minute away from judgment. Do not spit us out of your body, but retain us and incorporate us and keep us so that we may abide in you all of our days. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.